We're in a, a sermon series. I've never preached through Daniel before. I'll be quite honest with you. I've never studied the book of Daniel. I preached in chapter 3 because chapter 3 is the fiery furnace, and some of you grew up with that story. I preached a message on that more than once in my 27 years of preaching. But I've never gone through the book of Daniel. Okay, so I'm enjoying this uh, very much and enjoying uh, doing this. Uh, we've, titled, <clears throat> we've titled the message uh, against the flow, excuse me, the series against the flow. And when you deal with counter uh, cultural things, when you feel like your values are not the values of this world, and when you feel like you, just because of who you are as Christian, that you go counter cultural, that you must go against the flow, that there, there are some choices that people have when they see that I don't align with the world. Now, let's be honest. As we live here in Greene County, um, we don't have to face some of the things that a lot of people who live in some places across the United States and the world have to deal with. Um, we just don't. But there are some things, and we could talk about things that go on in our community, things that we read about that are absolutely um, uh, not according to our values. And I don't want to sound like an old curmudgeon and an old grumpy guy that's getting old to be able to say, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. That's not the type of person that I want to be. But we all see over the last decades uh, things happening that we never dreamed were going to happen before. We just ne we've just never seen. And one of, my, one of my concerns for our young people is that they're growing up in this generation. And they are, because I grew up in a different generation with different values, I see the difference. I pray that they can as well. And they can know that they are not growing up in a generation that is any friend of Christ. And that's why retreats like John uh, just took the kids on are really, really important. Because you get thinking, well, it's just me or it's just our little youth group. And then you see, see all of these 200 or more kids that are there. And that's one of the reasons that's important. So as we go, as we see the flow of the world going in different directions are certainly going in a direction that we are, are not comfortable with. People basically have, all people, me and you, all people basically have um, some choices. Now, two of those choices would be that we could assimilate to that or we could separate from that. Uh, uh, assimilate is, if you've never really heard that word, uh, if we have new people that are visiting uh, our church and don't really know too much about it and they don't know when to stand up and sit down and they feel like they're kind of in a foreign culture because this is new for them uh, it's our job to help them feel at home and what we're doing is assimilating them you have some pastors on large churches that they will be the pastor of assimilation and their job is basically for the new people that attend a church for them to seek those new people out and help them get connected and help them assimilate. So obviously with, with the world going this way or, or, and completely different to my values or your values, we could assimilate. We could just kind of go with the flow. After all, everybody's doing it. And, and it's pretty easy to go with the flow, right? I mean, I just get in my inner tube, and, and, and if, if the creek is going this way, I just get in it, and it, I don't really want to do anything. I just go with it. 
if I'm not actively doing something to try to go against that flow, I will just assimilate to the flow. So assimilation is a choice that some people can make. It's probably not an active choice. It's probably not a choice you make intentionally, but by not making a choice, you make that choice. Because if I'm going to go against the flow, uh, you know that's a choice, right? Because I've got to do something to go against the flow. If I don't do anything, let's kind of go with the flow. There's another choice that people make or can make, and some Christians have made this choice. And that wouldn't be assimilation, that would be separation. And we, we, we know of Christian groups that just pull themselves out of society. We know of Christian groups that just, um, uh, they don't do anything if it's not Christian influenced or if it's not Christian driven and they just pull themselves out of society. There's nothing wrong with the uh, <laughs> Christian yellow pages, <laughs> but are there some people that thinks we have to be Christian and do this Christian and this Christian and this Christian and this Christian. We have to form our own Christian stuff and our own Christian soccer leagues and our own Christian this and our own Christian that. And maybe there are some positives to that. Both of my boys are, looks like they're going to go to Christian colleges. Uh, there are some positives to that, but it doesn't seem to be the way that God wants us to be if we totally pull out, if we totally make ourselves separate. Um, these these uh, people that were taken to POWs in, in, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1 and, and all the way through basically talks about some POWs that, that the Babylonians went and took some of the people of Israel and took them back to Babylonia and they were basically POWs. And then they, ha they had in some way, they were trying to assimilate them. They were trying to assimilate them to uh, Babylon. They changed their names. They changed their names. They, they gave them uh, a Babylonian um, type of education. Uh, they wanted to change their meat and their drink and what they had to eat, and that's what's where Daniel ended up drawing the line on that. What the Babylonians were trying to do to, to these Hebrews that were taken in and captive was to assimilate them to their culture. And so I, I would imagine some rebelled against that, and that's why we have some words from the prophet Jeremiah that are just really fascinating words for us. The prophet Jeremiah tells us in chapter 29, verse 1, he says, this is a text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried off into exile, all the POWs. So, so Jeremiah, a prophet, speaking of the Lord, ha has some words from the Lord to these POWs who were now living in a culture that was about 180 degrees different than the culture that they were pulled out of. So Jeremiah has some words of the Lord, and they show up in verse 4 of Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those carried into exile. From Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. 
might not expect that. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what those gardens produce. You, you marry and you have sons and you have daughters and find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they may too may have sons and daughters and increase in number there. Do not decrease. Do not decrease in number. Oh, this world's such a bad place we shouldn't even have any kids. Do not decrease in number. Also, verse 7, would you seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile? Isn't that fascinating? This is some of the genesis behind Forzenia.com. And, and we, we want to seek the good of this city. We want to be good citizens of this city. Now, there may be a time like there was in Daniel 1.8 that we had to draw a line. When Daniel said, no, we can't. You can change your names if you want to. But, we, you know, you can make us go to three years of schooling if you want to. But, no, can't do this. But Jeremiah, speaking the words of the Lord, said, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, isn't it fascinating stuff? Now, I don't believe in any way, shape, or form that Jeremiah is saying you assimilate to the culture and you just go with the flow. What, you, what he's definitely saying, what he's definitely saying, don't separate yourselves. And, and I'm not, you're not hearing me put down any groups. I'm just saying that when these POWs were off in Babylon, he told them, don't separate yourselves. You may, you may in some way separate yourselves mentally because you think differently, but as far as separating yourselves physically, he said, I want you to mix and mingle as much as you can. I want you to seek the, the peace and prosperity of, of Babylon. I want you to get married. I want you as a people to flourish even though you're not in the place that you should be in. I just think that's fascinating. And, and there's, no way, there's no way that we can take this and, and say, well, God's telling them to assimilate because that goes against so much of other things that are in the Bible. But you can definitely say, God is saying, don't separate. You may have to draw a line one day. But don't separate. And isn't it amazing to me that I just read you verse 7. Four verses under verse 7. We have one of the most well-known verses in all the scriptures. For Jeremiah says, for I know the plans I have for you. You, you people that are exiles, you people that are POWs, you people that are living in a culture that you're uncomfortable with, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and to not to harm you. Plan to give you a hope and plans to give you a future. So, so going against the flow, going against the flow is, is, is neither assimilation or separation, but it's transformation. 
It's, it's that I, I can walk with God and I can be transformed, transformed even though I'm living in a foreign country. And by foreign, I just don't mean another country. I mean foreign in values. You can be transformed and you can work for the transformation. It's hard for me to work for the transformation of Xenia if I totally stay apart and I'm too holy to get involved in the things in Xenia. It's really hard to think how I can do as Jesus has told me to do, and that's to be salt and light. And I don't need to be light amongst among Christians because that would mean we're all light. And where you have light, you don't need more light. You need light where there's darkness. So if God has you in a place where you're a little uncomfortable with, maybe you're a lot uncomfortable with, but for at least the time being, it seems like this is where he has you. There may be a time where you have to draw the line. There may absolutely be a time where you have to draw the line. And you know what? I can't tell you where that line is. And you can't tell me where that line is for me. I, that's got to be between you and God. You may have to draw the line. But until you draw the line, you, um, you build houses and you eat from the produce and you marry and you raise kids and you seek the peace and prosperity of this foreign land that you're in. And by you being the light of the world, Jesus told us to be, don't put that light under a bushel. Let that light shine so the people will see your good deeds and glorify God. Who's put you in Babylon? Isn't that fascinating stuff? I never, this never, I never put Jeremiah 29 with, with Daniel chapter 2 before. And this is, that's one of the good things of just preaching through a, a book of the Bible. You can't pick and choose what you want to preach. It's not assimilation, it, it's, it's not separation. It's transformation. It's transformation. And I just wanted to come and tell you that at the very top of the third message on the book of Daniel. That was just introduction to my message, by the way. But I could stop right here, I think, because there's something right there for you. And I don't know how that works out in your life. I don't. And far be it for me to tell you how this must work out in your life. That's not me as a preacher. I have, to, I, I, I have to trust you and your willingness to discern the will of God for you in your life. And you'll draw that line. And you know what? You may draw it at a different place than me. But you know what? I'm no better Christian than you. And you're no better Christian than I. We all discern the will of God through all of that. So we come to Daniel chapter 2. So we've had, we've, had, we've had two messages on Daniel chapter 1, and we come to Daniel chapter 2, and we, we find the king of Babylon in, a, in a, a sleepless night is basically where we start this. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar. Who names their kid Nebuchadnezzar? I mean...
In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. So he's got all these wise men, and, and they're supposed to interpret the dream, and they do something. I don't really think they were interpreters as much as they tried to say some things that please the king. But he summoned them. He basically you know, says, I need to know what I dreamed here. I, I got this dream, and I'm troubled by it. When they came in and stood before the king... He said to them, I had a dream <coughs> that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll interpret it. That's the way it's gone in the past. You tell us the dream that you had that's giving you all this grief, that's keeping you awake, that you don't know what it's mean. You tell us this dream, and, and, and we'll interpret it for you. But evidently, Nebuchadnezzar was a little skeptical of his wise men. Because basically he throws a curveball at them. And basically he says, in the next verses, he says to them that, um, uh, and I'm not going to tell you my dream. You tell me what the dream was. If you're such wise man, you're astrologers, you're enchanters, you're whatever. Uh, I, I, you ought to know what I dreamed. So it doesn't say this in the text, but I'm just wondering... Why did he do that? He's never done that before. Is he a little skeptical of these guys to begin with? And so after he says, so he, he says in verse number nine, if you, do not, <clears throat> if you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things because the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, and they said, no one on earth can do this. No one can do what the king has asked. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing before of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. Verse 11 says, what the king asked is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among the humans. Verse 12 says, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution. This, one, this is one of the parts of the Bible, and there's lots of parts like this, where people ask, act in barbarian ways. Can I just tell you, we worry about the condition of the world today, and rightly should. The, the world of Old Testament and much of New Testament times was not a civilized world. <laughs> We hear of things like this that go on in Iraq and Iran and where dictators do stuff. It's been going on forever. So he basically says, you can't tell me the dream. Uh, then, then I'm off with your heads. And off with your heads would have meant by that time Daniel as well as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were, one, who were trained to be one of the wisest men. And so Daniel basically 
goes home and prays about it and basically says, Lord, can you give me some wisdom here? So, I mean, basically he's going to get his head chopped off if something doesn't happen here. And, Lord, can you help us? And Can you, can you let me in, interpret this dream? And so we jump down to verse 26 of chapter 2, and we have this. The Bible says, The king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw <coughs> in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, Nope. And there's nobody else that can. That's basically what he said. That's not an accurate translation from the Hebrew, okay? He just said, nope. <coughs> and no one else can. But then verse 28 starts with this. But there is a God in heaven. If I had to do all over again and start this sermon series and go back four or five weeks or whenever I started getting all the stuff printed out for all this, I'd have changed my uh, title of the sermon series. Because the more I get into the book of Daniel, yeah, against the flow's okay, but I would have been better off with, but there is a God in heaven. That's what I should have done. Because as you've been through chapter 1, we've had two messages on chapter 1. You've seen, you've seen how God is working behind the scenes in chapter 1. Yes, Daniel made some good decisions, but God is working. And here in chapter 2, man, he's going to lose his head. <clears throat> but there is a God in heaven. As I started thinking about that, I don't know why anyone would ever want me to do this, but if I had to sum up the Bible in one little phrase, I'm not sure I could pick a better one. I certainly wouldn't be the only one, and you could pick one good as mine, but I'm not sure I could pick a better one than, but there is a God in heaven. The essence of the gospel is, but there is a God in heaven. There's, there's bad news. Bad news is part of the gospel. Gospel is not only good news. Gospel is bad news too. I'm a sinner and need a savior. If there wasn't any bad news, then I wouldn't rejoice and, and, and gladly put my arms around the good news. There's bad news. But there is a God in heaven. The Bible, time and time again, life will give you bad news. But there is a God in heaven. Life will present us on a daily or a weekly basis, monthly basis, whatever it may be, will present us with stuff, will present us with the world, will present us with hardships. In this world, you will have trouble, John 16, 33. But there is a God in heaven. It's all the way through the Bible. Adam and Eve made some poor choices, right? but there is a God in heaven that showed favor on them. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. He says, well, how can I do that? I'm old age and my wife, she's past childbearing age. And I mean, how, how's all this going to work out? I mean, you've told me that you know, I'm, I can look up in the sky and, and my lineage will be as many as the stars that I see. How that's going to happen? And the way it happened, 
because there is a God in heaven. The, the, the first little group of Hebrew people from Abraham's lineage, it was Jacob and basically his sons and families. There's probably less than 100 of them. And, and, and there was a famine in, in the land of Egypt. And, and the, basically they would have been wiped out because of the famine, but in some way God comes and, and works through Joseph who, who got to the second in command in all of Egypt and the, 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 the little nation of Israelite, Israel, which only numbered maybe a hundred people at that time, they did not get wiped out because there is a God in heaven. I'm, I'm trying to tell you today that I think if I could sum up God's word in a phrase, I don't know if I could pick any better than Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. It says, but there is a God in heaven. Moses stood before the Red Sea, but there is a God in heaven. Joshua had to go fight the armies of Jericho, and, and the walls were so strong and formidable, how were they ever going to be able to succeed in this fight? But there is a God in heaven. Jonah was in the belly of a whale, but there is a God of heaven. Lions' dens and fiery furnaces, but there is a God in heaven. I hope that if I called on you here today, that you could stand up and be able to give a testimony that would essentially be, but there is a God in heaven. Because that's what the Christian life is. And I, I, I know you haven't been in the lion's den, and I know you haven't been in a fiery furnace, and I know all that. But you lost two grown boys, Harold and Vita Horton but there is a God in heaven. But there is a God in heaven. You have your stories. I know you do. But there is a God in heaven. Some of you have gone through bad marriage trouble. Some of you, let's, let's be honest. Come on, let, can, can we say what we're not supposed to say in church? Some of you probably married the person you shouldn't. But there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. Some of you have relationship issues now with families. Some of you tell me your family stories and you expect me to be able to tell you something to do. I don't, I mean, it's, it's a mess, man. I just, I just look at you laughing over here. It, I just want to look at you sometime and say, it's a mess. But there is a God in heaven. You know what that means? That doesn't mean, <clears throat> that doesn't mean God will fix all your relationship struggles because we know that's not true. But he'll give you the grace to deal with them. He'll give you the grace to deal with them. Some of you got kids that are making really poor choices and You know, I got two young guys on staff, you know, Josh and 
John, and they got young kids. I just want to tell them, enjoy it while you can. <laughs> it gets a lot harder. <laughs> Always all I had to worry about was poopy diapers. <laughs> Some of you are struggling with kids and kids are making bad, bad choices and, and you have no clue. You have no clue what to do. But you'll do, as Sue and I did this week, we took hands and prayed because there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. Some of your careers are not where you want to be and, and why are you in this job? Why didn't you take that other job? And I, There is a God in heaven. We lost Dan Baker yesterday and some of you know Dan and Edie. You sit right back here. And Dan has struggled now with cancer for five years and, and he died yesterday. And uh, we visited him last Sunday after church, and he was barely responsive to us and turned non-responsive about on Tuesday. And of course, then it was just a matter of time. And, and so after our visit on Sunday, which really wasn't much of a visit, I mean, he's non-responsive, so our visit was pretty much for Edie. And so we talked to her a good bit. And You know, I don't know how well you know Dan. Dan never talked a whole lot about spiritual things. Never did. And Edie was honest with me. She says, you know, Mark, I, I was concerned about that. And I had a heart-to-heart -heart talk with him about four weeks ago. And she said, I flat out put it to him. And he said, he looked at me square in the eye, and he said he was in better, more lucid state at that time. He said, he looked at me square in the eye and said, Edie, I'm ready. I'm ready. So Edie's a widow, twice widow now. But as soon as I talked to her around her counter in the kitchen, her demeanor was, yes, I'm a widow but there is a God in heaven. <laughs> yes. Who wants to lose two husbands? In this world, you will have trouble. But there is a God in heaven. Some of you are or some of you will be dealing with disease and cancer. And Come on. You know it's true. And as you deal with that, and as you deal with that, aren't we glad that there's a God in heaven? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I came to tell you this morning, I'm, it's pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, I, but I came to tell you that, that I, I pretty much think that you could summarize all of this with that little phrase. I hope because of your walk with the Lord, there's a time 
that you could be able to say or times that you could be able to say in your life and tell me of the bad news and things weren't going right but there is a God in heaven I've, I've, I, don't, I don't know I have no clue and so there's some of you here that can identify with this Greg McAfee you can identify with this where in the, where in the world would I be today if God didn't find me in 1993 Where in the world? Because it wasn't going in a good place, friends. Where in the world would I be if I don't have a but there is a God in heaven story? <laughs> I could, lots of them. I don't, where in the world? I, there's no way I would still be in the ministry at 27 years of doing this if it wasn't for Sue. I'd have quit a long time ago. I'm telling you, I would. She's pulled me through a lot of it. Where would I be without Sue Ewing? <laughs> but there is a God in heaven. <laughs> you know, in this life, we must go against the flow. That's, that's, I mean, it's not a horrible sermon title, but we must go against the flow in some ways. But as we go against the flow, we always know it, that there is a God in heaven. Uh, it's not just me. It's not just. It's not just. It's not just my my fortitude, my faithfulness of paddling against the flow that's going to keep me afloat and all of that kind of stuff. As I go against the flow, I need to know there is a God in heaven who meets me as I'm willing to be faithful to Him. It's not all on me. It's not gritting my teeth and going against the flow. God is there with me, but there is a God in heaven. When you have opportunities in your life that you have unbelievers around you, whether they be family members or friends or whatever, what a great way to evangelize. By simply saying, as, as your unbelieving friend tells you about what's going on and how bad the marriage is and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But there is a God in heaven. Yeah, I can identify with you. I, I was there about 10 years ago. But there is a God in heaven. What a, what a good way to witness. Well, Mark, I didn't use the spiritual laws and I don't know the Bible you know, the ABCs of salvation. I don't know any of that stuff. I could never do that. Yes, you can. But you know what you can do to witness? You can say, but there is a God in heaven. I've met him. There is a God in heaven. You're witnessing. You're evangelizing. Even though you don't know where all those verses are, then, you know, wages of sin is death and all that kind of stuff. You don't know where all that is. You feel incapable of doing it. The only thing you've got to remember is, but there is a God in heaven. But not only is it evangelism or witnessing technique, Jesus left and he told us to go make disciples. So when you have a Believer to believer. You know, you, you, you obviously know most, most growth as a Christian 
does not happen pulpit to pew. In fact, if that's the only growth that happens for you as a Christian, from pulpit to pew, you ain't going to grow very much. Most growth is the one another's in Scripture where we go pew to pew. And when you're pew to pew and believer to believer, you make disciples by encouraging one another and saying there is a God in heaven. As, you, as your kids are there and as your kids don't know what they're going to do and the kids don't know where they're going to turn on this and things aren't turning right for their kids and so forth and so on, what a way to make disciples of little Jimmy and little Jane by saying, you know what, Jimmy? You know what, Jane? I don't know too much, but I know there is a God in heaven. Have you talked to him about this? You've asked everybody else for their opinion. Have you talked to him about this? There is a God in heaven, Jimmy. There is a God in heaven, Jane. <laughs> um, back in the first century, King Herod said, you know what? Um, we need to kill all the little boys two years age and younger but that didn't happen Jesus wasn't killed because there is a God in heaven the Romans took Jesus to the cross but there is a God in heaven I'm trying to make a case for you today, although you could come up with other phrases that are as good. I'm not sure you can come with any better that describes the gospel, that describes this word, that hopefully describes my life and describe your life, is the one Daniel used in verse 28 of chapter 2. He says, uh, no wise man can do that, but there is a God in heaven. You know this about yourself, and I know this about myself. I'm a sinner. I don't have to take you to verse in Scripture that says that. You, you know it. I don't have to prove that by, by listing verses. You know it, and I know it. But we close our service every week with communion simply because there is a God in heaven who's made a way for you. I'm calling our servers to the table this morning for us to be able to receive communion today. And I just came to tell you a very simple little message today and there's just nothing, there's nothing uh, sophisticated about it. There's nothing theologically uh, astute about it. I just just came to say today that there is a God in heaven and I hope that you know that not only intellectually but you know that by the experience of your life and I hope you use that the truth of that as we live a countercultural life Father God in Jesus name we Thank you for the simplicity of your word and the truth of your gospel. And so, Lord, I, 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 pray that, I pray that someone will take this to heart and maybe 
write this and put it on their bathroom mirror or some mother or some father will put it on a post-it note and find it in a kid's backpack or give it to a wayward child or give it to a sister or a brother that's going through a difficult time and just remind us but there is a God in heaven and so Father we come to the table now and no matter what we've done what we've said we're reminded that you have come to us in the way of your son Jesus Christ and has have given us a physical demonstration of but there is a God in heaven may remember that now as we come to the table or we observe however we choose in Jesus name Amen our altars and our tables are open